Welcome to Naomi's Table, a Bible study podcast for women. I'm your host, Amy Spreeman. Check out all of our Bible studies at naomistable.com. Now, here's today's lesson in the book of James with teacher Beth Seifert. Welcome back to our study in the book of James, ladies. Today we'll begin in James 1, verses 1 through 11, and I've titled this lesson, Day 1, The Joy of Trials. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So this letter feels like it jumps around quite a bit. It feels a little bit stream of consciousness as James was writing this, and it's difficult to figure out where to break in order to make sure that we're being true to the text, reading everything in context, and looking for the melodic line, if you will, that goes through the whole letter. Because of this, the places where we stop and dig in may feel artificial or may not seem to make sense, especially if you're looking at your Bible with the headings and verses in it, keeping in mind those verses were put in 1,500 years after this letter was written. So bear with me, ladies. There's going to be a bit of back and forth in this letter as we strive to learn what God has for us here. Today, we're going through the first 11 verses. Tomorrow, we're actually going to start in verse 1 again, briefly review what we learned today, and then we're going to go forward through verse 18. So James's letter follows the typical pattern of the day. He first identifies himself and then identifies his intended audience. James identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, James was not an apostle so he isn't going to call himself one. He wasn't directly called by Jesus as the apostles were, or even as Paul was as one untimely born, as Paul says. James is a servant. He does the will of his master. He has authority, that's absolutely true, but he also has a different role to play here. Also, it's interesting to me to see him address himself as a servant to both God 
and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, this is Jesus' half-brother writing. This is a man who had a super unique view to Christ, simply because of God's providence in James's birth. So while he wasn't an apostle, seeing that he calls Jesus Lord here is a big deal. He recognizes this half-brother of his for who he really was, and James sees his place clearly in relation to this brother. James is a servant. Jesus, his older brother on earth, is also his Lord and Master. James addresses this to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. Now think about that for a moment. There have been many times in Israel's history when they were dispersed. The Babylonian captivity is the big one. That was a judgment on the people, and we talked about that a little yesterday. But God was faithful, and he preserved a remnant in the captivity, and in the end, he brought his people back to the land he had given them. They rebuilt the temple and the city walls, and they remained in that land for the next 400 years. But James writes to God's people who once again are dispersed. This time, though, those twelve tribes are not literal. But the word choice helps the reader to see a glimpse of their place within the framework of history. Now, this phrase is unique to the twelve tribes of Israel, and it certainly entails believers from Israel, but it also reaches to the Gentile Christians of the time who have, through Christ, become part of the true Israel. And as James writes this, the dispersion occurring at this point was one of grace, as the people spread out all over the known world and brought the saving gospel with them. An interesting side note here and a bit of history that we do need to keep in mind. When the nation of Israel split after Solomon's reign, ten tribes went north and two tribes stayed in the south. The ten northern tribes were Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, and Zebulun, and they were part of what was called Israel. The two southern tribes were Judah and Benjamin, and they were part of what was called Judah. Judah also would have included Levites, who, although they weren't given their own land, were consecrated by God to do the work in the temple. The temple was in Judah's territory. So, while some Levites may have abandoned Judah and gone to the northern territory of Israel, most stayed in the southern kingdom. Now, why does this matter? Simple. The kings of the northern territory of Israel were so exceedingly wicked that God destroyed them and the tribes were lost. The northern kingdom fell roughly 150 years before Judah was sent into exile. If you read through First and Second Kings, you'll see this happen. After the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity for the people of the nation of Judah, most of the exiles returned to the land, although some did not. When they returned, we see in Ezra and Nehemiah that the leaders of the community are working to figure out who among them is of the tribe of Levi, so that when the temple is rebuilt, they can have the right people working and serving in the temple. There's a list of names there of those who they could verify were actually of the tribe of Levi, so we know that those people still existed. But from the time of the fall of the northern nation of Israel, there haven't actually been 12 tribes. 
there were two, and the Levites. So as James writes this letter to the twelve tribes, he's doing a work to affirm these people as the true Israel. Almost as if they were the missing piece, and they're now brought back in to where they belong. It's a simple sentence, but it conveys a lot of meaning and acceptance and grace and love to the believers. And we see the first issue that he addresses is suffering. That little phrase was one that likely gave them hope and confidence that they were Christ's, even as they endured suffering for the sake of Christ. James then gets straight to the point. Count it all joy when you meet trials, trials of various kinds. Trials are to be a source of joy for the believer. We've seen before in other books that we've studied that God's economy is not the world's economy. Things are upside down and inside out in God's economy. Read through 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and see how God explains that the wisdom of the world is folly to God, and God's wisdom is a stumbling block to the world. Here's just one more example of what that looks like. Count it joy as you face trials. Joy. Why? Why would anyone in their right mind look at a trial and count it as a good thing? James doesn't leave us wondering. Because when we meet trials, we find that our faith is being tested. What happens when our faith is tested? Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians 1, as he describes the suffering they experienced in Asia, despairing even of life itself. And what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 1.9 was the purpose of that suffering? So that he wouldn't rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead. Testing and trials are never outside of God's control, ladies. Some trials we face are a result of our sinful choices, and we have to deal with the consequences. God is refining you through that, make no mistake. Some trials we face are simply a result of living in a fallen world that hates God, and horrible things happen that may not be a result of our own sin. God is still in control of those things as well. He allows things for His purpose, for His glory, and for our sanctification. If we are truly His, we lean into Christ. We don't abandon Him. God preserves His people so that we can persevere through this life. When we endure pain and suffering as believers, we know there is truly only one source of hope for us, Christ. So we draw near to Him. And as we draw near to Him, He produces steadfastness and sanctification in us. Sometimes in a trial that's all you can hope for, just to endure it and to suffer in a manner worthy of the gospel. But that steadfastness and sanctification will result in equipping us for the life of godliness that we are called to. In this we will be perfected, complete, lacking nothing. But that isn't going to happen this side of heaven, ladies. We will not be complete until we are with Him. However, every trial we endure, every time we suffer, and bring glory to God throughout whatever we are suffering, God is drawing us near to Him, shaping us more and more into His image, and helping us to become more and more like Him. Do you see how that does bring joy as He accomplishes His purpose in us, especially through the hard things? No suffering is wasted in God's economy. So after pointing to God's work through suffering and trials as being that which tests our faith so that we may be lacking nothing, 
you can almost hear James say, oh, and what you need most in those times is wisdom. And God will provide that too. The only way we can endure trials in a way that glorifies God is if we have his wisdom to do so. So James tells us that if any of us is lacking wisdom, do something about it. What, according to the Bible, is wisdom? Well, Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord is the start of wisdom. Biblical wisdom is not less than head knowledge, but it is more than that. Biblical wisdom starts with a right understanding of who God is and an understanding of godliness so that we can do what pleases God. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge and understanding we have from God. God is the source of all wisdom. God is the source of all that we need always. So here, James is referring to wisdom that we need to endure suffering, but this can be more broadly applied as well. If you are lacking wisdom in general or in a specific circumstance, ask God, the same God who gives generously and without reproach, and he will give you wisdom. God is generous. He doesn't want you to try to do this on your own, and he will provide what you lack. Ladies, this isn't like Oliver Twist asking for more food. God not only is not miserly, but also is not offended by us asking for more, especially as we strive to grow in him. He tells us to ask for this. So ask. There is a caveat here, though. Let the one who asks, ask in faith without doubting. When you ask God for wisdom, trust that he will give it. Don't ask God for wisdom while expecting he won't deliver. Don't ask and then whine when you don't like the answer. Don't ask, then doubt and think that all you're asking is in vain and God cannot answer. If you treat God like that, you should not be surprised when God does not give you what you ask for. He will grow you and teach you how to wait on him, how to trust him, and how to accept what he gives you as a good gift. God is not double-minded or unstable. But when we ask without faith, without confidence that God will do what is right and good, we are double-minded and unstable. The contrast is strong here, and we need to remember that we can have confidence that this same God who saved us is growing and shaping us through our work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification to become more like his Son. I think as Christians living in this culture at this time, this is hard, a hard concept for us to understand, but this isn't unique to James. Hebrews eleven six clearly says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Those atheists who try to quote-unquote disprove God by supposedly praying for a miracle and then when God doesn't respond like a genie in a lamp, they scoff and insist that is proof that there is no God? They're only fooling themselves. God is under no compulsion to do what any of us asks ever. But for the believer, we do have some specific promises that God has given us that we can hold fast to, knowing the answer from God will always be yes. 
Asking for wisdom is an example of that. Praying for God to align us with His will is always going to be a yes as well. Praying for God to be glorified is another example. Now, make no mistake, what that may look like may not be what you expect. God lining you up with His will may be very painful for you, as God refines and sanctifies you. It may not be all roses and candy. God being glorified may not look like what you think it should look like, but make no mistake, God will be glorified. So keep that in mind here again as we fight our flesh and we fight the world which has its own version of wisdom and we seek to come in line with God's wisdom. Have faith that God will give you wisdom and don't be double-minded and unstable as you ask for it. So our last little section today is another example of God's economy and how what looks like wisdom to the world is once again flipped on its head. Verses 9 through 11 seem very strange to our ears, especially in a world obsessed with money and wealth. Remember the context. James has been talking about trials. Is not having wealth a trial? Is having wealth a trial? He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Well, that's weird. Lowly and exaltation are opposites, right? So how does the lowly brother boast here? Again, if we are looking at this with worldly eyes, this does not make sense. But in God's economy, the lack of material wealth for the lowly brother isn't an actual problem. Every single believer has treasure in heaven. Every one. No matter what your circumstances are on this earth, that treasure in heaven cannot be taken away from you. It's yours, secured for you by Christ. So that brother in lowly circumstances is still a co-heir with Christ, and therefore he has reason to boast in Christ. In a similar way, the rich also can boast in the knowledge they have of where true treasure lies. The rich are not boasting in their wealth on earth, nor are they punishing themselves for having wealth on earth. The rich are able to boast for the same reason the lowly are, because they can boast in Christ. Everything on this earth will pass away. It will all be thrown into the fire and be burnt up. Everything both the poor and the rich have is temporary. It is only when they have stored up treasure in heaven that they will find true wealth and satisfaction. Then our circumstances won't be the guiding principle for us as to whether or not we're a success. You can have joy now regardless of your circumstances. Your value, your worth, and your hope are not in what you possess when you are living in God's economy. Again, context is key here. James is calling the people to contentment, to persevere in trials, to keep going as he addresses this issue of material wealth. We are to persevere and trust God regardless of our physical circumstances. We are to be content where God has placed us. When we lack something, even something we can't put in our pocket like wisdom, ask God and trust that he will provide what you need. So we're going to stop here today, but we're going to revisit this tomorrow. Ladies, we've all had trials in our lives. The year 2020 could be summed up as a year-long trial. As you consider a trial that you've gone through or a trial you may be going through, Ask yourself today, what is my goal here? How does this passage in James help you to see what your goal should be? Are you struggling to find joy in trials? 
Take that struggle to God. Are you struggling to understand how to walk through whatever you are facing right now? Where are you really putting your hope in your ability to solve the problem or in God? How does this passage help you to better understand God's economy? Ladies, take heart. No matter what you are facing today, God is not unaware. He is El Roi, the God who sees. He sees what you are facing, and He will provide the grace and strength you need, moment by moment, if you'll only trust in Him. Trust Him, ladies. Rely on Him, not on yourself. No matter the circumstances you face, remind yourself of the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for you, and boast in Christ. He has done far more than we could ask or imagine in saving us and keeping us with Him. Ladies, you'll find the notes for this study under the Bible Studies tab of the website naomistable.com, Day 1, The Joy of Trials.